3: And hope that nothing gets through These walls are high Guarded by a statue And you've been blind Cause it's
1: yourself you consume But not this time
2: So let's say, I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 80 for June MMXIV. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prizes you may encounter are August Spackerel number 34 and Birds of Prey number 34, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by TweakedAudio.com, high-performance noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off their whole order and free worldwide shipping. TweakedAudio.com, plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Well, friends, listeners, I survived a, a harrowing experience with an actual live bat In my small one bedroom apartment. It was very interesting. I don't really know how it got in. I don't know how long it had been there. But, you know, there I was just minding my own business. My lamp went off. About, you know, 28 minutes later or so, something kind of came swooping out and I wondered what it was. I look up. Oh my word, there's something flying around and that is not a moth. Tried to shoo it out using, you know, opening my door and turning on the light out there. Nothing. So I ended up turning on the light within my, you know, my living room and it, zoop, it just became docile right away and like landed somewhere. So then I had to fight it, which was actually pretty easy. It just landed by um, my guitar and then the, the whole thing was, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Going back and forth, thinking about Tupperware, what what can I use? I wish I had a net. I don't have a net. Finally, I ended up dropping this, this bucket that uh, a couple years ago I got a bunch of cookies from an eighth grader and uh, still have that bucket so I dropped the bucket on it as soon as I drop that bucket on let me tell you some screeching seriously began uh, all the while I'm texting Donovan he was no moral support whatsoever and uh, then I slip a magazine underneath the bucket and then I carry it out and I, I go outside and I let it go and then it starts flying back towards me I let out a screech myself and run back inside and then it's just kind of hanging out right by my door I'm a little freaked out, like, oh my goodness, is it trying to get back in? Is it going to get back in at some point? Luckily, it it flew away. So uh, I guess, you know, whenever, when I posted this and when I mentioned it to other people, of course, we're in this business, we read comics. Everyone's first instinct was, of course, the, the Batman year one reference. And I don't know if I'm going to become a bat yet. And I guess I shouldn't really tell you if I do, because then my secret identity would be jeopardized, but uh, I, I guess I should take it as some sort of sign, and maybe I really am back roll now. But I survived... So there we are. I mean, you know, they're cute. Was I freaked out? You know, bats are, you know, they're cute, and they're interesting to study from afar, and and I do like animals, wild animals and things, but when they are within a constricted living area, it's not the best situation, so I'm glad that it is gone. At one point, I did think about putting it in my hamster cage. The hamster's not in there, people, so don't think I'm, I'm like, a terrible person, but my empty hamster cage and just kind of, like, having it as a pet, but then I decided that that would be... Be cruel. Plus, what would I be feeding it? You know, I'd have to go get live spiders or something from a pet store. So anyways, all that to say that here I am now recording this and uh, I survived that experience. I do have a couple news bits, or I guess just one, and it, it's rather depressing. It's that Birds of Prey is going to be canceled in August, with issue number 34 and it's also going to be canceled with batwing and all-star western so this is in august and batwing and birds of prey are going to have a special futures end number one issue in september like all the other new 52 titles that month so i guess we'll we'll see it for the last time there but the solicitation for birds of prey reads by batgirl betrayed but why is she siding with the suicide squad find out in this tale from the birds past so it's a it's you know it's it's sad um, obviously you know you that have been following along know that I've given it some high marks but for the most part I, I think it's been pretty steady um, and, and certain storylines lines have seemed to drag on for a little bit but what I'll miss most I think is just this solid and consistent characterization with Barbara Gordon and it's something that you don't see in her actual book Batgirl. And especially, you know, even in this... Well, in the previous issue where she was just being a great leader and and giving orders and figuring stuff out, and then we kind of see... Oh, a little wobble but you know a strong leader still in this issue but it's just a bummer that you know all i'm gonna see of Batgirl and barbara gordon is just this weakened and whiny characterization of her in her own book and um so that's you know that's just a bummer and of course we're losing an all-female team which you know that that also is a bummer of course we have some female-led books but you know the birds i think have have been something that we've seen for a very long time you know just with um they, they had those mini series and, and one shots and then it finally got an actual series and uh... it's just unfortunate that a mainstay like this and and something that i think has kept consistent numbers and sales is being dropped but this is not the first time that a good book has been dropped and terrible books are being kept so what can you do My other news item is this particular episode I'm going to do the last two issues really where Batgirl or Barbara Gordon is in fact Batgirl. And the author of these, uh, Barbara Kiesel Randall or Barbara Randall, I'm actually going to interview her. So that will hopefully come out later in June or it'll happen at least in June. So if you're interested in, in writing in and asking her a question, um... You know, please just, just send me a line, to oracle at gmail.com. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, I, like I said, I'm doing these two issues that she wrote now, and, and they're pretty important, and a lot of things have changed, and some things have stayed the same, and there are some questions certainly that reading through um, I, I've sort of come up with, and, and, you know, killing joke is always there. So I, uh, I'm, I'm interested to see what sort of answers and, and discussions that we can get into, so I'm excited about that. Okay, well, I did have a long comment from episode 78, and I'm very glad, actually, that it's long because it is very in-depth, and it's from our friend Chris Carnes here, and it's, it's answering a question that I had when I was reviewing some of these issues. So Chris says, Regarding when Talia and Catwoman found out Batman was Bruce Wayne and being in the Batcave for the first time, Talia unmasked an unconscious Batman in her first appearance in Detective Comics 411, cover dated May 1971, but it was due to severe beating he got from the League of Assassins and his face was not too recognizable. She would next appear in Batman number 232, which was the first appearance of Ra's al Ghul, who reveals he knows Batman as Bruce Wayne and reveals that Talia is in love with Batman and that Batman would be a worthy son-in-law. Talia would breach the cave under the Wayne Foundation building in DC special series number 15, also known by the cover as Batman Spectacular 1978. In a story with great Mike Golden artwork entitled I Now Pronounce You Batman and Wife, Talia uses sleeping gas to capture and kidnap Batman from the cave. Batman would awaken on a ship in international waters to find himself in the middle of a wedding ceremony with Ra's presiding just as he hears Raish's voice declare them Batman and wife. Batman prese- protests that he didn't say I I do, but Raish says in his nation that only the consent of the daughter and the father is necessary. The story would have Batman thwart a plot, Talia leaving and Raish escaping, and is well worth tracking down for that and the other stories in the comic. As for Catwoman, her first trip to the Batcave was in Batman 324, cover dated June 1980, in a story entitled The Cat Who Would Be King. Catwoman was unconscious and passed out from pain when she was spirited by Batman to the Batcave that was underneath the Wayne Foundation building after they both escaped from a trap set by Catman. So this is the Batcave, eh? It's everything I always thought it would be, she stated after she awoke. She would leave the cave blindfolded with Batman via a batplane to track Catman down. When she found out Batman is Bruce Wayne, is much murkier. A few months before Detective Comics 526 came out, where Catwoman and Talia barged in the Batcave, we have to go back to a story in Batman 355, cover dated January 1983. In the story entitled Never Scratch a Cat, written by Jerry Conway, Catwoman goes after Vicki Vale in a severe fit of jealousy. In a fight with Batman that narrowly goes too far, Catwoman says, Bruce, I almost killed you. I was that close. This is the first moment that we see Catwoman clearly knows Batman as Bruce Wayne. However, there was no depiction of any shock at the revelation at all. If this action and lack of reaction baffled many readers at the time, myself included, did I miss something here? The editor chose to print only two letters of comment that appeared in Batman 359 about this huge huge moment. One reader asked when did Selina learn that Bruce Wayne was the Batman, while remarking about the issue. Another reader said that Catwoman and Selina Kyle's previous appearances gave no indication that she knew Batman was Bruce Wayne, but theorized she may have put two and two together while aiding Batman versus Rachel Gould in a four-part story called The Lazarus Affair that came out two years earlier in eight- 1981 within his comments. While both letter writers raised good points, the parts about Selina knowing Bruce as Batman were never directly addressed by the editor. Quick aside, while we're baffled at Gail Simone's lack of explanation of how Barbara Gordon came to walk, <laughs> you bet we are, imagine if DC put out Batman 355 now and what the reaction you'd be. Yeah, I, I think that people would be way more up in arms than the, the Batgirl stuff for sure. To so confuse matters more, three years later in Batman 389, Batman blindfolds Catwoman before taking her to the Batcave. The letter writers chimed in again, pointing out that this move was totally unnecessary by Batman. At least this time the editor acknowledged the oversight in Batman 393. Quote, many readers pointed out that the blindfold was unnecessary when Batman took Catwoman to the Batcave. It was an accident that was caught too late to correct, but it's nice to know we have many astute readers. Finally, in Batman 397, cover dated July 1986, the editor flipped again and opened the letter column with this statement. Quote, Before we begin this month, we need to clarify something. In the letters page for Batman 393, we told you that we were in error by allowing Batman to take Catwoman to the Batcave blindfolded, since as of Tech 526, she knew Batman was Bruce Wayne. Well, we were wrong. As soon as the comic hit print, the error became apparent, and we want to state now for the record, Catwoman does not know Batman is Bruce Wayne. Never has, and maybe never will. Forget what we've said in the past and what was done by other writers. This is the. Of the land. Sorry for the confusion. Well, that whole thing is as as confusing as Linda Danvers' uh, crisis, or I guess post-crisis biography, or I guess Supergirl's. Any biography of Supergirl Wow they need to have some consistency there But I guess we're in New 52 So it doesn't matter anymore But yeah n- first of all goodness gracious Thank you so much Chris for For answering that question Because I really did want to know You know, How do they know who he is How are they down there And I guess it's good to see that DC stays consistent In the fact that they go back and forth And they're wishy-washy And <laughs> they don't know what's going on So I don't know you know, is it good that, I, I think it's um, one of those things that you kind of want Catwoman to know who uh, Batman is, because I think it would create a stronger relationship between the two of them, and it somewhat reminds me of Black Cat and Spider-Man, uh, and of course, Catwoman has a murky past and, and she's I don't think you can entirely say that she's a hero but I don't know if she would ever use Batman's secret identity for her own gain so you know I'd be okay with her knowing it maybe not a new 52 but in the past so I don't know why people I could see why people were so freaked out that you know suddenly she knew but I think afterwards they could have really done some great stories with it. and then uh, some person who uh, I've kind of blacklisted from this podcast uh, Donovan Morgan Grant uh, he says the Chris is right Catwoman knowing Batman's secret ID is about as weird as Batgirl knowing and the not knowing in Tom Panarise's recent Taking Flight episode which in fact I do really recommend he goes over when the Joker mind wiped Catwoman to forget who Batman was and this carries on for years until hush when Bruce unmasked for her. You know what's funny about that mind wiping? Remember when Backrow was mind wiped because of the tape recorders and like Robin took the tape? Oh, such a bizarre storyline. You know, let me tell you a little something about uh, Donovan Morgan Grant. This guy is like the hero of some of my Latin classes. Um, there, there's I put as a social experiment a, a picture of Donovan right by my desk hanging on a wall and so only some people knew of it but the news of this picture spread quite rapidly and you know everyone wants to know who this is what is his relationship to me you know what's he like what does he do for a living where does he live is he a gangsta what does he talk like it's it's a very interesting thing what young and impressionable 8th graders want to know in fact one of them really wanted to have a phone conversation with him and (laughs) um... he was going to let him talk for a little bit to see how he talked and, and and he would go from there and which led to many interesting discussions about culture and sort of how you how you relate to others with a different culture or with a similar one and do you take on a different persona or are you yourself and so that was interesting but yeah i i don't know you know many people would like to see who this donovan character is in real life and whether or not he actually appears, you know, at my school and and shows everyone his actual face, I guess the world may never know. Okay, my final comment, and, you know, I was just thinking about this as as I'm wrapping up, you know, these two different stories for Barbara Gordon is remember richard from barbara gordon's recent job with the humanities research department we know him as a jerk you know i've called him a jerk he's he has an issue with politicians so he therefore had an issue with babs but remember his bizarre story one that people are someone called him uh there are, there are letters but you never really knew what was going on what's super frustrating right now is because there's been just a lack of barbara stories she was somewhat taken out of detective and replaced by green arrow she's just been appearing and having minor stories i guess that's never going to be resolved and that's a question of you know what was his storyline what was even the point of him i mean it's not like i'm invested in the character at all but something that panel count is being spent on you kind of want it to be worthwhile so i guess that is my my last comment before i get into the books now this is i guess we can say a momentous occasion for backworld oracle uh, just because we are we are at the end uh, the end is killing joke and we are these two issues before it. And boy, there's some crazy stuff that goes on. Some things I uh, I think are done well and some things I, I think are not done well. And you also have to remember, people, that the crisis happened. So for those of you who are not as well versed in the crisis, and of course we went over some of things, and, and Michael Bailey, of course, again, thanks to him for coming on. He, of course, went over in general what the crisis was, but just remember that because the crisis happened because several worlds were sort of combined i guess lack of a better word many characters histories were also combined with others from other worlds so now we've got we've got a different Barbara Gordon and um, it's not necessarily the same one but uh, I think for the most part I may complain a little bit or, or take some time to complain about this new origin and, and what I like about it and what I don't so without further ado let's get started this is uh, the beginning of the end for sure uh, remember also to stay posted before I get started but to stay posted uh, to Twitter and uh to facebook and because there's going to be that call-in right uh with uh, the killing joke and basically i mean what do you have to, you're probably wondering what do i need to do i mean all you need to do if you haven't already which i haven't and for some reason dustin and ed over the batman universe thought it was a running gag and i really had but i promise you that i have never read the killing joke and uh you know people may say that's a travesty and maybe Beg the question what, why I even have this show And whether I'm respectable anymore But I say that I think I still am And the reason I haven't is just I know what it's all about I've seen those panels But i I'm sort of been dreading it And I've been waiting And so you're going to hear from me For the very first time And probably after the the very first read on the show so anyways what you have to do is just read the read the book and and, you know come up with did you like it did you not like it and and why and do you think it it really deserves a a place um, a place of respectability and just Uh, high marks on the shelves of other other Batman books and what did you think about what happened to Barbara so those are some questions to sort of think about but just yeah your thoughts and hopefully people will call in and and we'll be able to uh, to get just a varied amount and 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 differing thoughts on that book that I think, you know, I, I feel like they're going to contrast and I feel like they do uh, spur arguments. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it and I'm looking forward to reading it, but I look forward to hearing other people's thoughts. Okay, but let's get back to this when Barbara Gordon was actually and still is. backroll We've got Secret Origins, and this is volume two. Number 20, Flawed Gems. Also included in this issue was The Secret Origin of Dr. Midnight. Cover date, November 1987, a year after I was born. I was one year old. Who knew? I should have been in my diaper and reading this book. Writer Barbara Kiesel, penciler Rick Leonardi, inker Dick Giordano, and colorist Carl Gafford. Batgirl is prowling the rooftops of Gotham City in pursuit of a fast-paced thief with a power pack. She eventually catches him, only to discover that he is a young teenager. Shocked by his age, Batgirl lets him go free with a stern warning, but the incident reminds her of the paths she'd traveled to become Batgirl. Flashback. When Barbara Gordon was a little girl, she lived with her family in Ohio. Her best friend was a girl named Marcy, and together they fantasized about one day becoming powerful superheroes. During one such escapade, Barbara learned some shocking news. Her mother, Thelma, yes, that's right, Thelma, had been killed along with her aunt in an automobile accident. As bad as things were for Barbara, they were even worse for her father, Roger. Yes, Roger. Roger began drinking heavily and taking his aggression out on Barbara. A few years later, Roger's drinking and self-abuse finally took its toll on him, and he passed away. Barbara left Ohio to stay with her uncle, James Gordon, yes, her uncle, James Gordon, and her aunt, also named Barbara, in Gotham City. Barbara was excited about living in the same city as the legendary Batman and took every opportunity to learn as much about the Caped Crusader as possible. When Barbara was 13 years old, she snuck into her father's darkened office to find him conversing with none other than the Batman. Before leaving, Batman surreptitiously left a note behind for Barbara to find. It read, don't get caught, he'll get angry. The following morning, Barbara decided that she wanted to learn self-defense. She convinced her adoptive father to allow her to enroll in a karate class. Like everything else, Barbara excelled in class and quickly became the envy of her instructors. More importantly than her martial prowess, however, was her academic achievements. She earned top scores in high school and was able to graduate two years early. At 16, Barbara became the youngest student to ever enroll at Gotham State University. She graduated with honors and accepted a job as a research librarian at the Gotham Public Library. Before long, though, she was ready to live her true dream. The police officers of Gotham City were hosting a policeman's charity costume ball. In attendance were many of the city's wealthiest patrons, including, of course, Bruce Wayne. Barbara fashioned her own costume and decided to crash the party as Batgirl. When she arrived, she found that a costume criminal called the Killer Moth and his cronies had been planning on raiding the event and stealing the proceeds. Batgirl swung into action for the first time and succeeded in driving Killer Moth away. Batman arrived at the scene and admonished Batgirl for her reckless behavior. Despite his harsh criticism, however, Barbara continued to adventure as Batgirl for several years. She eventually earned the Dark Knight's respect and approval and accompanied him as well as Robin the boy Wonder on several missions. After a brief stint as a superhero, Barbara decided to retire as Batgirl to pursue a career in politics. She became the youngest politician ever to hold a seat in the United States Congress and serve for one full term. Following her foray into politics, Barbara partway came out of retirement and donned the cape and cowl once again. Okay, well first I'd like to talk about just the continuity. I mean, hopefully you weren't too annoyed by by when I was saying, repeating different family names and things like that. So let's talk about her family. Her mother is Thelma Gordon. Her father is Roger C. Gordon and he becomes an alcoholic after his wife's death, and we actually see him hitting Barbara at one point, and then afterwards, they're holding each other, so I guess he becomes apologetic. Not really known how often he hits her, so there's at least that one time. Now, her uncle is Jim Gordon, His wife, obviously, is Barbara Gordon, and then the son, James Jr., and she goes to live with him after her father's death. So, complete role reversal here, taking away that father-daughter relationship, and by proxy, I guess they become father-daughter. You know, she does call him dad, and, and Barbara mom and even at the beginning when she's talking about uh babs seniors jewel she says my second mom so there is that but um i do think that something is a bit missing because they're not biologically related and and they still have that nice relationship but it's just a bummer that all of a sudden we have this like why did you even do that what was the point in having this degree of separation from from jim gordon I also want to talk about Supergirl. Supergirl already exists, meaning she's probably already an adult. And she exists when Babs is young, when she's young and she's with Marcy. And it's hard to tell how old she is. But, I mean, she looks like she could be seven. And Supergirl looks like she's already an adult, maybe a teen. But I think it's a stretch by that picture that they have. Um, and it, that, that strikes me as just very strange Because Babs and Kara If this is in fact Kara Which I guess we've transitioned to Linda Danvers now They're usually close in age, right? Because they've had team ups and everything And they're, they're able to relate to each other And I think that's what makes Batgirl and Supergirl Work so well So it's just very bizarre to have Supergirl Already in existence And I mean at least, you know Ten, if not more Years older than Babs Another strange thing, and something that actually really bothers me, is there's already a bat girl in existence. And, and I think we can assume this. Uh, there's a picture, you know, the little girls look at, and then there's the doll. So I feel like there has to be some sort of model because if there's already a Supergirl model and, and you've got a doll of Supergirl, then where did this bat girl come from? Now, my problem is the bat girl is in Bab's uniform like the, I mean, the pre-crisis Babs uniform. And it actually really looks like her. It's it's got the hair and everything. Uh, But this doesn't make sense given, you know, Babs was the one to introduce that cut and that color scheme. And it's obviously not Betty Kane, especially just the way, I mean, it's Batgirl. It's not Bat-Dash girl. So I honestly don't know what that is about. Um, Is that just a way, is that an error on some part? Is, was there another Batgirl hopping around pre, you know, pre-crisis? Is it something that when the worlds combined, just a lingering idea kept in people's heads and they made dolls and action figures and stuff for that something that uh, I, I don't know so I you know I just obviously the crisis mess it messes time, the timeline up and, and in certain ways you kind of have to accept that that's just what happened um, but it's hard to accept it when you know you don't like what's actually going on but but I think just that that backroll doll and just is she already in existence and it's not Barbara it's somebody else running around That's just one that uh, doesn't make sense to me. While I was reading it, I, I certainly got a bit of a an MJ Watson vibe from the family scenes, especially when you know her dad is a drunk and and she's trying to help him out, saying "Dad, I don't want you to die," and then he hits her. And you know, I, I tried to think: is Barbara Gordon similar to to MJ Watson? I, I don't, you know, if I were to pick anyone that I think she'd be similar to, I think in certain respects she'd be similar to to MJ. But we know that MJ kind of she's closeted in a certain way, just that her feelings. Uh, she keeps them hidden and and she's had a rough past and and I think in this way you know the the crisis pulled out some rougher past than Bab's really had originally. but I don't know like her intelligence and everything and and not being as flighty I don't know i I've just really gotten closer to Gwen Stacy and and I wonder if Babs is closer to that and and there could be somebody else that's involved in in Peters parker Peter Parker's life that She's like, I don't like the whole, you know, father hitting hitting her and having this drunk episode. You don't know how abusive he is. Has this happened before? Um, You know, I think, is this just a way to make it darker and and to give her a darker past and and a more tragic past and then to show this dichotomy and and bring her over to Jim Gordon and and have her have this nice life? I have a bit of an issue with that. I don't know. I mean, and it seems like if she is abused, I mean, she doesn't really show it afterwards because she just unflinching and everything else so you you'd think she'd have some sort of flashback so i i guess i just don't really like this um of course you know This is a big push with Marcy, just introducing her here, because we're going to see her again in Batgirl Special Number 1, and I think this was a way for Barbara Kiesel to to really set her up for us to see this. I like seeing the origin of her being intentional about becoming a hero. She's training her mind and her body. You see her journey through school and politics. Uh, That and the first appearance of Batgirl and her meeting with Batman, I think, stay the most true to the original origin. Now, when Bab starts talking about her departure from politics, she mentions her turning into a snake, uh, that storyline, and the cormorant. And I do wonder, why choose these two stories? Now, Barbara Kiesel did not write these, so that's not the intention. Do you think, I mean, she does talk about weird. Was this just a way to... Let me take the weirdest story, which that could have been it. And then Cormorant, you're going to see him really be focused on in Batgirl special number one. But that's going to be one of my questions to Barbara Kiesel is just why this focus on the Cormorant? Um, why why was he so significant in her life? Now, if you remember uh, the Cormorant, well, I'll talk about him later. How about that? I do wonder, you know, she talks later about, you know, not being able to remember the uh, Cormorant's face um, when of course at the beginning she says she never forgets a face so I didn't really understand that you know is this because of the crisis are th- certain things wiped from their memory or is that just her kind of PSD post traumatic sp- PTSD sorry about that post traumatic stress and you know why does she have trouble knowing the real reason she is Batgirl and this is a problem that I had with her crises appearances just bemoaning the fact that she's Batgirl and maybe she doesn't deserve and she's not as good as other people I mean she's there she's doing stuff she should understand that she's helping people out and she should just deal with it the villain um, or the kid as it were is such a tertiary plot detail which begins and ends the story was it really necessary to get this origin story for babs you know I, i don't really think so i think there's probably some other way that we could have done it and was it even necessary at all i think we could have had the heart of the origin story without even having him in it here's a quote I flirted with the first Robin for a while, but he was so young. Batman was always the one on my mind. I flirted with the first Robin for a while, but he was so young. Batman was always the one on my mind. What in the world does this mean? Um, I like the fact that it's included that yeah, in fact she did have some sort of flirtation with Robin, but Batman on her mind, does that mean she has a romance? Like romantic inclinations towards him? Does it mean she's just more devoted to him and and stepping up and being the hero that uh, he wants her to be? That line really bothers me because I just don't think... I think Batgirl and Batman, um, while they have a great partnership... Um, I don't, I feel like it should be more of a father daughter relationship just because he has such a close relationship with Jim as well. And, and having any sort of romantic notions between the two, uh, bothers me. There's a big focus on her being taller than ordinary, uh, which actually stands in contrast to Batgirl year one. and It's a bit of a bummer, obviously, because I, I felt closer to her because, hey, she was shorter and I'm shorter. I do like the fact that Babs' accelerated, accelerated learning is explained, just how she graduated and, and when and things like that. And then she also realizes that she shouldn't stand out so much, so she dials it back also, and I thought that was great. I also like the, the physical prowess that she is given. But you know, my main question, I think, is just why retell her origin, uh, and in some ways, you know, Barbara Kiesel is redoing it, and why retell it when she's just going to retire soon, anyways. So I think that's uh, that's a big question, and, and hopefully, one that can be answered. I I don't know if there's a use for it. Is it perhaps to to gain attention t- towards her? And to make this retirement all the more prolific, and then whatever, what happens afterwards, obviously. Who knows? Is it just a way to highlight a character post-crisis to see how it's changed? Maybe. I don't know. All good questions. All good questions. I do wonder, you know, how popular is Dr. Midnight at the time? Is he a popular character? Or do we take sort of second and third tier characters and, and put them in a book together? So, all, all good questions, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully that'd be a good question uh, for Barbara Kiesel to answer. My next and last book with Barbara Gordon as Batgirl is the Batgirl special number one, The Last Batgirl Story. Writer, Barbara Kiesel. Penciler, Barry Kitson. Inker, Bruce D. Patterson. Colorist, Carl Gafford. And the cover date is, in fact, 1988. So four years ago, and in comics time, that's a long time, actually. So uh, this happened in Detective Comics 491 and 492, if you remember this story. Batgirl attempted to thwart an assassination attempt by a killer called the Cormorant. However, she soon discovered that the little girl he held hostage was not his intended target. It was Batgirl herself. When he opened fire on her, she leapt over the edge of the building and hung from a flagpole, hoping that Comorant would think he had succeeded in killing her. In some ways, he had succeeded. Some part of her had died that day, and she was reduced to a world of haze and self-protection. Now, Batgirl's soul has dreams of being hunted and killed by Cormorant. Her feelings are made worse by the fact he has apparently returned to commit a murder right under her nose in the Gotham City Library where she works. Particularly troubling is the fact that his distinctive hat has been left behind, as if to suggest that he knows who she is. Barbara takes charge of the crime scene, having her co-workers call the police and secure the area while she makes sure nobody touches the body, an excuse to do some investigating of her own. She searches the body and pockets a note just before the police arrive. The coroner determines that the corpse is one, David Scarano. The police begin the process of questioning the library's patrons. Barbara uses her hacking skills to break into the victim's file, only to discover that he was the son of a criminal called General Scar, the same man who hired Cormorant to kill her. David's own rap sheet shows that he has a history of violence against women and she deduces that his father decided he was enough of a liability to send comorant after him when she finally gets home barbara prepares to go out as batgirl and begins a routine that she always performs a weapons and equipment check that assures her that she is prepared despite all of her equipment being in top form her own self is not and she goes to sleep instead the next morning, somebody dumps a body on the street outside the 15th precinct of the Gotham City Police Department. Along with the body is a note claiming that the killer's victims are people who have committed unacceptable crimes against women. The media dubs the killer Slash and a vigilante. Later that morning, Barbara receives a visit from her old friend, Marcy. Despite their happy reunion, Marcy's first act is to chastise Barbara, having guessed that her friend is also the mysterious Backroll. They had created Backroll together, huh? And she is upset that she could lose Barbara to the persona they created together. In order to help her friend understand her, Barbara retrieves the doll back they that they made together. Well, this is all coming together, but it seems bizarre nonetheless. And Marcy comes to realize that Barbara had never left the dream they had fade. Later in the middle of the day, Slash confronts a man named Iverson on a crowded sidewalk and stabs him for his crimes against women. After abandoning his body in the street, she sneaks off into an alley and removes her disguise, disappearing. Marcy insinuates herself on Barbara's research into the Comorant case and together they discover that Comorant's real name is Edward Wells. Not only this, but they have his address too. Marcy suggests that they call the police, but Barbara is bent on revenge. She feels that she needs to face him herself in order to stop being afraid of him. She stakes out his house, where his wife passes him an important phone call. While he answers it, his wife overhears news report on Slash and considers that maybe the vigilante will come for her husband, given that he beats her frequently. After hanging up the phone, Comorant goes into his back room and prepares to make his next hit, Slash. Before Barbara can make a move, Marcy appears in her car and orders her to get him. She warns that Barbara has no real proof that Comorant is the killer and that she is behaving like a common prowler. While Barbara is chasing Comorant, she is letting Slash, the real killer, go free. Begrudgingly, Barbara admits that she may be on the wrong track. That night, Slash sneaks into an apartment to find a woman waiting for her there. The woman offers the killer job, another man to add to the list of evil people who abuse women. The woman passes Slash a file on Comorant and warns that he plans to kill her, so she will have to act fast. Finally turning her attention to Slash, Barbara determines that the killer must have access to police records in order to know her victim's crimes. She cross-references lists of unconvicted men who have committed crimes against women and determines that the next likely victim is one Anthony Cattarino. He has chosen to stay in a halfway house rather than protective custody, which makes him vulnerable. Packerl stakes out Cattarino's window, knowing that the guards outside will keep him safe. However, she catches sight of movement from within his room and realizes that Slash is already inside. Batgirl smashes in through the window and confronts the killer, who holds Katerino hostage. Slash challenges her to stay back, lest Katerino's death become more painful. Backgirl responds that while she is out for justice against people like him, she leaves it to the court to decide who is guilty rather than killing. Slash is disgusted by Backgirl's attitude and attacks, stating that if Batgirl hadn't been made weak by man's influence, she would be able to protect herself from the blows. Finally, she stabs Backgirl in the shoulder and leaps through the window. Barbara attempts to give chase, but her thoughts are haunted by her failure at the hands of Comorant and eventually they overwhelm her and she collapses. She dreams of Comorant, now accompanied by Slash, killing her over and over again. Rising and shaking off the dream, Barbara decides that it's time to give up being backer. She returns to her home and collapses on the floor in front of Marcy. Marcy helps to bandage Barbara's stab wound, thankful that her friend has finally seen logic. She encourages Barbara to do the research and find the evidence and turn it over to the police rather than putting herself into danger. However, despite keeping up appearances, Barbara still intends to stop Slash on her own. She can't stand the thought of leaving loose ends. Barbara goes out again as Batgirl, but she finds that despite arriving at the scene of a number of crimes... She is always a moment too late, as some other hero swoops in and stops the criminals. Eventually, she comes to realize that she is but a minor force among heroes these days, and the city is well protected without her help. She decides that with the info she gathers on Slash, she can weave it with other heroes and know that she will be captured. On the other hand, she lacks the evidence to have Comorant caught by others, and so she determines to catch him herself. Batgirl breaks into Comorant's home while he is there and confronts him. Comorant admits no connection to the murder of David Scarino and invites her for a drink. Backerel's obvious obsession amuses Comorant and he jokes that while he botched the assassination contract on her, he clearly made an impression. He reaches behind his bar and pulls out a shotgun. He pulls the weapon on her, warning that she lacks evidence and is essentially trespassing, making use of his gun in self-defense. Comorant's wife interrupts him, but he orders her to stay inside as he forces Baccaro out onto the front porch. However, this gives Slash, who has been hiding outside, the opportunity to stab Comorant in the back. Angrily, the assassin turns to get back inside, but finds that his wife has locked the door. In his frustration, he fails to stop Baccaro from kicking him hard in the chest. From this point, it becomes a standoff between Slash and Backrow as to what to do with Comorant. Both women distracted, Comorant escapes to his gun room and arms himself. Desperately, Baccarol drops a smoke bomb, avoiding the gunfire. Hoping that Comorant will run out of ammo soon, Batgirl picks up one of Slash's knives and arms herself with it. Unfortunately, Comorant manages to emerge from the smoke and points his gun in her face. Seeing that Slash is still alive and preparing to attack the gunman, Barbara is forced to decide between saving herself or saving the man who has haunted her dreams for years. Begrudgingly, she chooses to save Comorant and tosses the knife into Slash's chest. Comorant is amused and tosses his gun away, preparing to take Backroll with his bare hands. She proves to be more resistant than he expects, beating him mercilessly until he crumples on the ground. Weakly, he reaches for his gun at the same time that his wife puts another gun into Slash's hand. As Comorant prepares to fire on Backroll, Slash shoots him through the head. Before collapsing herself, Slash admits that she couldn't let Comorant kill Backroll, another woman. The police arrive later to find Comoran dead, his wife smiling happily, and Slash badly injured but expertly bandaged. Afterward, Barbara returns home and offers Marcy a present, her backrow costume. She decides that while she may still help others fight crime, her own role will not be to go out and put herself in danger anymore. The end. Well... Yikes! Lots of stuff goes on in here, uh, to be sure. Let's first talk about just the way that Babs talks about the Comorant. It's really reminiscent of how modern Babs I think thinks and feels about the Joker shooting her. And you know, I guess I just wonder why Comorant and that, that that's the big thing, right? We 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 got a little recap as to his history and how he knows Babs, and hopefully you remember that those particular issues, but. Did he have such a big influence on her? I remember, you know, she was shaky. But did this shakiness last for four years? Was there nothing else? You know, she was talked out of it by her father. And then we have Marcier kind of talking her out of it. I just wonder why use Comorant as the model for for all of this. and, And really the whole story, I think, hinges on his involvement I wonder why Babs is back in the library what happened to her other job I guess the HRD job is gone it is interesting and you know this is the classic Babs so it is I guess good to see her in the library but again just another crisis change Stella in the library returns remember Stella way back when in the 60s I wonder if this is the same Stella. I think it seems too easy for the kid in the library to be connected to General Scar, the man who hired Cormorant. And in the end, Cormorant says, I had nothing to do with that, but hey, how did his hat get there, and who killed him? Did Slash kill him because he had some sort of record? But why would Slash leave his hat there? I think that's one of those loose ends that not at all uh, cleaned up or tied up in the end and a big question and a big plot detail and it's not answered i like the weapons check i think it's interesting to to finally see her full array of tools and it's also interesting to see the new lenses that her cowl has to shift from infrared and x-ray to other things and we saw this pop up actually in secret origins twenty first. first you know you see the scary scene of a white glove pushing the doorbell and it happens to be marcy hey 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 but you know i wonder if this is this foreshadowing that all you see is this white glove this gloved hand pushing the doorbell and i don't know i i wonder really when was killing joke like starting to come about well i guess it had already been people probably already know it's 1988 right now people may already know in the offices you know this is about to happen so perhaps this was foreshadowing now we're told in the origin story that they lost touch but apparently they've been pen pals because marcy talks about that a little annoyed that Marcy just comes in yelling at Babs about being girl. I mean, she's been girl for years already. Why didn't she just come up with that? And the fact that you know they talk about making it together, um, it's hard to determine. Like, what does that even mean? Did you just make the costume and the attitude? You made that doll, but you know there are images and everything, and I just wonder where did this come from? It, did they? It was it just a creation? And if so, it bothers me slightly just because. I mean, the original intent of Batgirl is, you know, she modeled it after Batman. And it was a way to throw a joke at at her father, which I guess her now uncle. So it's, you know, if it was already created and already there, where did she get that inspiration? Why wasn't it talked about there? And does it have as much meaning, does it? Um, and, And I feel like it doesn't, you know, it's just something, I mean, it could have been anything. I think they were talking about other names and, you know, not only Supergirl, but all like Power Girl, like just different, you know, other names, Fantastic Girl, but Batgirl is the one that stood and you kind of just wonder about it and living in Ohio, how would they have known anything about Batman? Was he around that time? (sighs) Very hard. I mean, that's, you know, supposing that he's been around for like 10 years if she was like seven. So I don't know. It's, it's, it kind of blows my mind. I think this timeline is super screwy. How in the world, I think, you know, is no one noticing someone getting stabbed on the street and following over his... his his blood is dripping and like they use this you know I think this happened to like James Bond where they're like oh it's my friend you know drunk but they're actually dead and, you know I just don't know how how is this all going on and especially with just the costume and people not questioning it at all and then he flops to the ground and that's when you decide to call 911 I don't like Marcy watching Babs do investigating and you know Babs is okay with that just you know she leaves and then she's like I'm just just kidding I'm coming back I'm gonna see what it's like to be girl. Eh, I wouldn't. Li- I don't like people, you know, looking over my shoulder, seeing what what kind of stuff I'm doing. Not that I'm doing anything bad, but just you know, my work is my own, and that's you know, if you're not going to help, you need to you need to leave Marcy. On page fourteen, actually, if you're reading this, there's a word balloon error. It just switches the words between Babs and Marcy. It doesn't make sense what Marcy says to Babs because it should be out of Babs' mouth. So that's kind of interesting. So Mercy, I mean, if you can't tell, she's quickly getting on my nerves uh, since, you know, she decides it's a good idea to yell at Batgirl, actually, outside of the Qumran's house. You know, yell at her and tell her to change. Number one, how did she find her? If it is true, you know, about the address, Babs was sloppy and should have covered her tracks and you know Marcy shouldn't have been there number two why is she acting like her mom you know and then she continues to give her advice on how to step back and not obsess this seems like a very bizarre relationship between Marcy and Babs I don't trust it. Uh, give me a break about the knife wound from Slash. I mean, Batgirl is talking about, at least the cape got it. You know, Slash stabbing down in a pretty violent manner. There's no way that Batgirl's cape just caught the brunt of that. And, you know, if she isn't hurt, then why is she falling off rooftops and saying her arm is numb? I think it's bizarre. Uh, here's a quote. Once upon a time, the Comoran killed me, and I've been dying ever since ugh, that's just the emo, the emo back roll right there. I mean, you would think after a while that you'd be able to, you know, are we setting this up for the Joker and that we're going to have this, I think this is like the first Joker instance where it's going to haunt her for the rest of her life. And I just don't know what I feel about that. I feel like she's strong enough of a character that, yeah, she's going to be hampered for a little bit. Maybe she's going to have a talk by Jim Gordon. But after that, she's going to like push it off and get back to work. But to say that, you know, this is, greatly affected me that i cannot sleep i always see his face i've been dying my soul has been dying a little bit each time i think it's a little too heavy and a little tad on the ridiculous side that girl you know she's again whining about her lot she decides to quit and marcy says hey maybe this is a good idea but you gotta see this case through so marcy maybe you need to choose a side because obviously if you tell her to see the, it through it's not going to be in her street clothes it's going to be in backgirl. you know she goes back and forth between loving the job and feeling like she's not helping and that's not helping us as readers enjoy that character and it's not helping me understand what that character is like and why is she going back and forth it's a crazy backgirl. Who in their right mind would marry the Comorant, I have to ask. I wonder what that was like. If if I could go back in time, maybe I would prank Donovan and maybe the wife of the Comorant would uh, pop up. But it'd be interesting to hear how they met. Just another abusive storyline, which is a bit of a bummer. I, I don't necessarily... Did it have to be like this? Could you have done it another way? The cormorant, like, he's just down on his luck, and that's what happened. This speech the uh, cormorant gives doesn't really sit well with me. Uh, he doesn't seem like the type to want nor need a self-defense ticket. I mean, he was, after all, hired to take back her out originally, so why does he think that he needs to justify killing her now? I hate people fighting needlessly when there is an obvious threat right there. Slash and backroll's actions just put them in a terrible situation. And this is something that pops up, and I will always point it out, and I will always complain about it. So, seriously, there's a common enemy. Go after him. Batgirl throws a knife at Slash kind of I mean, taking her out. I she was pretty still. I wondered if she was dead. And you know, saying that she cannot allow anyone to take a life that she can save. And really, how does this make sense if you're nearly taking someone's life? I mean, inch to the left, to the right, up, down, anywhere. Batgirl could have killed her and she's saving this this jerk that we've got that abuses his wife and and nearly killed Batgirl. Does this make sense? Then Comorant is dead. Slash is put on a hospital gurney with her mask on, so we don't feel, or we don't know who it is, and Batgirl rides home on a train in a trench coat, and apparently she feels wonderful. Uh, gee, you'd think, you know, she'd feel guilty about the Comorant dying, and, you know, I just flash back to Stephanie Brown as Batgirl, one of her f- first nights, one of the, the people fell out of a building, and it wasn't her fault. Obviously, she was trying to protect him and, and just something that she was fighting got to him first before she could save him, but, I mean, she was racked with guilt over that, and here, I mean, she's just like, da-da-da, another work, another day done. And then Babs hands Marcy the costume which I don't like because wouldn't that be something that you'd like to keep to sort of uh, remember that, just like Batman keeps his costumes in cases and other people's, obviously. And, you know, says that there are others out there who do a better job than she does with less pain, and she will be on the sidelines. And, of course, I think we're we're getting towards Oracle because, yeah, that's, you know, or, I mean, perhaps the thought of it, right? Because I think originally the intent may not have been Oracle, but just the thought that she can help in some other way, and I do like that, but I don't like the thought that, you know, what does this less pain mean? I mean, is it less physical pain, less emotional pain? If the Comeran is gone. Is it time to turn over a new chapter and and get over it and become backroll and maybe be a better backroll, backroll 2.0? Uh, you know, I just don't like. I I think it's a a bad moment for her to turn it over, and I don't think it's implying anything that that Marcy's going to take up and be backroll. But I think it's that backroll is retired and that chapter is over, and she's going to do something else. But I mean. I don't know. I I just think it's a, it's a bad way for for that to happen. I think that there was Perhaps a better way for, for all of this to go down. So my thoughts on Komoran as a bad guy. Just he's written in such epic proportions. Someone that's just been this, this creature nightmare for Batgirl. And to think that he's had such an impact on her. And I remember that storyline. And I, I know that it had affected her afterwards. And it even affected that little girl if you remember. And then Barbara struck up a relationship with the father. But to, to just see that he's influenced her life so much i don't really like i think that all of a sudden he's come become some somewhat of a nobody i mean he just sits at home it seems waiting for contracts how did he even get out of that situation i feel like the way the story ended even though batgirl keeps saying that he got away i feel like with batman helping her out that they were able to sort of put him in in general scar behind bars but i guess we'll let that go who knows i don't know i i think we just take this really moderate bad guy and and really blow him up and and create this huge arch nemesis for her and i'm not sure that uh i like that as much because it preys on her fear rather than her strengths i think it preys on her weaknesses so not not too sure about it thoughts on slash you know is she too much you know was this the only way to kill off the comorant at first i wondered uh you know wouldn't it be funny if slash turned out to be marcy but I wonder if it's too much just because we have the Cormorant, we have all these psychological issues attached to his appearances, and, you know, then we add this feminist vigilante who's who's taking out people that have anything to do with female brutality or, or anything. You wonder who she is. We don't get any of that. How did she get into public records? Well, I guess they're not really public records, but police records. What, how did all of this begin? I think that there's probably something there, and probably she was assaulted or, or battered or, or something like that. But, you know, did we need another villain when we had the Comorant? Was it just a way to get everything in a head and, and to have a way to kill Comorant? I wonder what it would be like without her. Uh, You know, Marcy takes on the role of Jim Garden here, the original, just with his pep talks to her, especially after, you know, losing her congressional seat and perhaps this assassination business. But she also takes on this, like, motherly role that I feel she has no reason to take on and no right to take on because yeah they were friends maybe they were pen pals but she's been gone for a while and and you know all of a sudden she chooses now to show up and to uh, you know basically dress Babs down about being Batgirl and to say what are you doing and follow her out and potentially jeopardize her life by yelling at her while Babs is up at a tree so I'm you know I'm not really a big fan of Marcy I I wonder what point uh, she serves, if she's not the successor of Batgirl, why really is she there, and is there a better purpose, and could we have used Jim Gordon in some sort of manner, perhaps again revealing that um, he knows, you know, Barbara is Batgirl, because I guess that has been erased with our crisis as well, so it's just, uh, it's a, a bit of a bummer, I think, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, it is, it's an interesting story, and it's just not the way I think I would have liked Batgirl to go out. But, you know, I, I do applaud Keisel for taking uh, a story from the past and, and bringing it forward and, and using that as a, as, a, as a model. But was there a better way to use that? And, and perhaps was there a better character? So I get actually give this a six out of ten bats, and I don't. I feel like now that I'm all done with that, I feel like I may have skipped what grade I gave on the previous one. And I gave the Origins twenty a seven out of ten bats. So Origins seven out of ten, and Batgirl Special number one, the last Batgirl story, a six out of ten. You know, I'm looking forward to after all of this with many questions that are raised, and and I think points of discussion that I can bring up. I I'm even more looking forward to interviewing and talking with Barbara Kiesel, the writer of this. Well, when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl 31. Well, I guess I should flip that. I'm going to review Batgirl Annual Number 2, Batgirl 31, and Birds of Prey 31. But first, we've got Zias' Radio Hour, and it's featuring This Is Not the End by Goongor. See you soon. We've got Double the Batgirl, and then, of course, Birds of Prey, and we've got an annual. And let's see, remember last time the annual should have actually been entitled Catwoman Annual, and it was when we really um, started to get to know Strix as well. But let's see about this one. Batgirl Annual Number 2, When Pamela Gets Blue. Writer Gil Simone, penciler Robert Gill, inker Javier Garon, and colorist Romulo Fajardo Jr., And just a note, this issue takes place sometime recently after Birds of Prey number three, that's volume three, of course, and before Birds of Prey number nine. Uh, And this, you know, I don't necessarily take full stock in that because, uh, you know, this issue spans at least nine months, and we know that the, the back row book from issue number 1 to 29 was only a couple months, so I, I just really think that Simone has messed up the timeline a couple times in this book here, so just take that with a grain of salt. Some time ago, Batgirl agreed to accompany her close friend Black Canary on a mission, enjoying the company, though reluctant to join Dinah's team of oddballs. This mission was marked by the fact that Barbara could not understand why their targets had turned terrorists. They were all sick with terminal diseases, and they all answered to someone called Mr. Rain. At first, it appeared Dinah and Barbara were outnumbered when the rest of Dinah's team turned up, and among them was Poison Ivy. Together, they cornered the terrorists, and Batgirl managed to question one, demanding to know what Mr. Rain had on them that was making them behave this way. The man responded that as a healthy person, she could never understand his motivation. With surprising strength, he ripped through her high tensile batrobe and took a swing at her. Confused, Barbara wondered how Dinah could have missed the intel that these people could crush bricks. Barbara noticed with worry that Poison Ivy appeared to be enjoying causing havoc too much that day. Knowing that her priority should be to protect hostages, Barbara focused on taking down the terrorists, but she had to shift gears when she spotted Ivy getting sinister with one of the hostages. Angrily, Ivy swatted her away, only to suddenly change her tone and apologize, as if unaware of her actions. Stopped in her tracks, one of the terrorists crawled across the floor to whisper a message in Ivy's ear. What he said drained the color from her cheeks, but she wouldn't share his words with the others. The birds of prey did not find Mr. Rain that night. The terrorists wouldn't say a word. Within a week, Ivy would betray them all. Some time later, Barbara was wakened from her sleep by her roommate, Alicia, stating that she needed warm bodies, and Barbara had been drafted for her volunteer organization's attempt to build a garden at a recently reclaimed abandoned lot. Within three months, they had successfully made a garden, but Barbara hadn't been very successful at getting much of a life going on for herself. With all the work they put into the garden, though, Barbara was concerned that the poor people of Cherry Hill would come and take the vegetables they planted. Alicia responded that the food they planted was being grown exactly for those people. Nobody could steal what belongs to everybody. That night, Barbara investigated a facility on the mainland of Kane County, having kept up her investigations into Mr. Rain for months. This was the first solid location she'd learned of since she began the investigation. While on her stakeout, she soon became aware that Poison Ivy was present, watching her. Barbara was naturally suspicious, and Ivy was not forthcoming with her explanations for her presence. Even so, their motivations seemed to be allied, and Barbara allowed her to tag along. Despite Ivy's claims that she was pregnant with something other than a flesh baby, whatever that meant. As she cut her way through the chicken wire fence around the facility, Batgirl whispered that she needed to know what the man had told Ivy on that mission months ago, or they couldn't work together. After a pause, Ivy explained that the man had claimed Mr. Rain could fix her. As far as she was concerned, she didn't need fixing, even after years of doctors and law enforcement officials claiming that she definitely did. Was wanting to save the earth. Really so insane. Soon though, they were spotted by the guards and Ivy demonstrated what she was pregnant with. Potential. She managed to bind every man to the wall of the facility without killing a single one. Her power surprised Barbara. Ivy remained cryptic about what had changed in her as Barbara urged her onward and began breaking into Mr. Rain's lab. Inside, they were disturbed to find human bodies hung and bagged from the ceiling, all of them with scars all over their body. It was another three months of working together before they got another lead. A particular patient, one of the same ones Batgirl had met on the first mission, had been placed under police lockdown after being caught during a raid. Together, she and Ivy snuck into his room to ask him just how he was coerced into acting for Mr. Rain. The man was James Tucker. Wait a minute, isn't that a cartoon creator? And he was once an accountant at a booming tech firm. When he learned of his terminal pancreatic cancer, Mr. Rain sent someone with an offer for him, a medical trial, an implant that could prolong his life by six months. He learned, however, that he wasn't a patient, but an incubator, an organ farm. The implant kept them alive, but it was only activated by being inside a human donor. After six months, Mr. Rain would have the implant removed, along with a viable organ put into some rich patient while the host died in agony. Ivy explained that the implants had used plant DNA to replenish the unhealthy cells. As they left Tucker's room, Ivy commented that Mr. Rain seemed a bit of a jerk, such an understatement in Barbara's eyes that she lashed out angrily, being reminded that Ivy's lack of concern for humanity enraged her. Friends and family are important for humanity, something Ivy seemed to have become devoid of recently. Ivy responded that it was sad, and it took Barbara a moment to realize that Ivy meant SAD, as in Seasonal Affective Disorder. Ivy's strange behavior of late had been a reaction to the change of season. Her apathy now was only a sign of winter's coming. Angrily, Barbara decided she'd had enough and turned to leave, only to have Ivy thrust her over the edge of the balcony, leaping after her as they crashed into an outcropping roof garden below. With disgust, Ivy remarked that she never wanted to be human, threatening to kill her erstwhile partner. Barbara quickly recovered, punching her to the ground and declaring whatever partnership they had over, adding that it was time for Ivy to get some real help afterward ivy returned to tucker's room explaining that her father was not a good man he had been physically abusive toward her mother and when she was ten her father killed her mother and buried her in the front garden leaning in she breathed her plant pheromones into tucker's lungs and took his life allowing a tear to streak down her face as she assured him that his daughter loved him back as much as he had loved her Three months later, the snow had fallen on the city, and Barbara was shocked to discover with Alicia that their garden had been burnt and torn up by the root. The vandals had even put kerosene on the ground to prevent any further growth in the area. What Alicia could not understand was how anyone could be so cruel as to do that for no reason. Barbara hated to have been right about it. Later that night, Barbara received a message from Ivy via Black Canary begging for help. She had found Mr. Raines somewhere in the woods of Kane County. Soon after entering those woods, she was caught by one of Mr. Rain's men. Fortunately, she had the skills to intimidate him enough that he simply ran away. From behind her, Backrow heard Ivy's voice, weakly wondering why she hadn't just hit the man instead of telling him she would first. Barbara explained that she told him so that she wouldn't have to hit him. Ivy smiled then, explaining that that kind of mercy was exactly why she called her, even if she didn't intend to arrest her. Ivy explained that while Barbara had been seeking one of the richest men in Gotham, she had made the mistake of looking in Gotham. In fact, Ezekiel Rain was living out there in the woods, a trillionaire. Despite his penchant for environmentalism and minimalist lifestyle, his actions were evil, and Barbara had the evidence she needed to bring him into custody. Before she could do any such thing, Rain turned to Ivy and explained that he could fix her condition in exchange for murdering Batgirl. Angrily, Ivy grabbed up Rain in icy vines, warning that while she may not have been herself, hate is the seed she grew from and it is always in bloom. He had killed a good man for no reason, many good men. Whatever miracle he had to offer, she didn't want it. As she prepared to squeeze the life from him, Backrow begged her to take mercy on him, not for his sake, but for Ivy's sake. Sighing, Ivy let him live, but warned that eventually she would resolve her problems and become a terror to Backrow once more, though she muses that they might have been friends in another life. Even so, she agreed to go to Arkham, hoping that her stay would be a short one. In the meantime, going to Arkham would square them after having betrayed the birds of prey before. Sadly, Backrow wondered to herself why Ivy had to be so extreme. She really could change the world one day if she weren't so deadly. Just five hours later Alicia returned to the site of their garden to find that it had been regrown and it had produced a bounty. Pleased, Barbara knew that it had been Ivy's doing, and she'd been right not to give up on her. Okay, so actually, you know, isn't that nice that this actually focuses on Batgirl? Uh but what's a little strange, however, is that it's also focusing on Ivy and their relationship, and it's very birds of prey heavy. Uh, of course, it doesn't have the whole group, but just the fact that it, it focuses on this, this beginning and the relationship between Ivy and Batgirl. I do wonder, you know, why is Simone writing this? And, and why not maybe Swarzinski or Christy Marx? so i mean simone really has no and should have no connection there to birds of prey and and i feel like maybe it would have been interesting to see what it would have been like to see swarzynski write this Uh, again i feel like the timeline is slightly messed up batgirl was technically already on the team almost i mean i guess she uh... maybe it wasn't official yet but by the time you know ivy was on you know batgirl was a member because remember she said that i'm going to join just to watch her so that's a little bizarre that you know we start off and Batgirl is still not on the team and that's that's in conflict with uh, what is actually in the Birds of Prey again the timeline just seems weird with uh, I mean this goes from nine to twelve months and and Batgirl of course is just a few months so I think something is weird with that Okay, so the main villain is this Mr. Rain and you get him for three pages in the end and my big question is, who is this guy? All you know about him is that hes he gets, I guess, a lot of money from rich donors because they need organs and everything but, you know, he's going to pop up again he has some sort of reach. Wouldn't this have been the way to introduce him and give him a bit of an origin? And I feel like that was done poorly. Um, I, I like the fact that this issue focuses on Ivy and Batgirl. I think it does a good job with that. But if our main villain is Mr. Rain and you only give him this amount of screen time, uh, then what is that about? I do wonder what uh, what's with the multiple panels of the bat symbol with vines around it. Is it just a means of showing time changing because you see the spring, the summer, and the winter and everything? Uh, and, and is it just symbolic because, of course, you have Batgirl and then you have Ivy surrounded with her, but is that just panel space taking up time? I mean, if you're telling us three months later, three months later, and we get a sense just looking at the panels and seeing the season, is this necessary? Could we have added some more panels that could have uh, told us a little bit more about what was going on? Uh, why doesn't Backrow have a more adverse reaction to Ivy showing up outside the compound in the beginning uh, and, and why does Backrow even continue to, to work with her this is after the betrayal of course so it's a little weird just that you know she notices she's sneaking up on her and she's wondering you know why I know you're back there <laughs> you betrayed me I mean you would think like she in my mind I think she would be super angry about it perhaps there would be some sort of scuffle but I don't think she would trust her at all to be any sort of partner in the least so I I think that that just goes against the character and what's going on Ivy just seems plum crazy in this spouting off just really bizarre things having weird emotions in the beginning I mean what's this about is it the seasonal thing that Batgirl's talking about later and and why did this not show up in the actual Birds of Prey run because for, I mean she had her sort of violent tendencies but she didn't have this SAD business and just this pregnancy garbage I mean what the heck and you know she talks about it as if it were a real like I uh, I'm showing and then well it's not a fleshy baby and then all of a sudden it's pregnant with possibilities are you serious um i I just think that's that's it was dumb it 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 didn't seem like very good ivy writing i mean ivy is a pretty cool character and i think we've seen how great she can be in birds of prey and also in detective comics and to have this and just really weird and bizarre things that she's saying drops the, the character down for me Here's my question: Have you ever seen the movie Never Let Me Go? Carrie Mulligan's in it, and actually Andrew Garf- Garfield as well. And it's sort of a dystopic future, and it's uh, this idea that these rich people uh, clone themselves, and the clones that they are using they use for organ harvests. Um, and you're following not you're following a, a group of clones and you know just getting to and you never see you know their their benefactors i guess you could call them but you see their life and then slowly obviously you see them die out because some of the the organs that are harvested they can live without and some others you cannot so you get emotionally invested with that but really i mean this is this comic is it and this is kind of one of the problems that i have with simone's writing is that i feel like and and i can't i honestly don't know if it's unintentional or intentional, but it just seems like a lot of stuff is not original. And of course we can make the argument, is anything really ever original anymore? But just some things sort of really get on my nerves, just the, the fact that, you know, could you have come up with something else that was a little more creative, but, you know, maybe I'm the only one that scene, never let me go, and, and we've got this. But it just seems like it was pulled right from there, except, you know, it wasn't clones. Ivy's friends with Harley in the New 52, I wondered about that. Uh, When did that happen? I've actually not seen them interact in the New 52, so that's interesting. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Uh, Ugh, there is a Game of Thrones reference in here with Ivy saying, Winter is coming, and, you know, I like Game of Thrones, but it just seems, I don't know, it just seems like a cheap, and let me make a pop cultural reference in my comic, another one. Finally, you have got a fight between Baccarol and Ivy, but really what purpose does it serve? It should have been right at the beginning, and then they should have come to some sort of truce, but in the end, it, they, have, they have to hash it out right there outside the hospital. We meet Rain, like I said in the last ten pages, but we don't get a lot about him, and then Poison Ivy turns into, get this, Poison Ice. Are you kidding me? Who in the world came up with that name? Does it really seem... I mean, all of a sudden, she's Mr. Freeze or Mrs. Freeze. Like, that super bizarre. I don't really like that nor agree with it. The end doesn't really make sense given the fact that Rain is just uh, then offering a chance to Ivy to cure her, but it seems at the beginning that she has already had some sort of relationship with him, the way that she's talking. And I think a little bit more than just him offering that chance, it seems like she's actually partook, partaken, and uh, has been helped out in some way for uh, by him so i do wonder about this uh... the art changes because we have a couple are quite noticeable and and i feel like they go from bad to good to bad to good again you know how i like consistency so i didn't really like that ivy's design is not consistent with what happened to her when she changed colors with the seasons and then started losing her leaves you get a little bit of the fall and the dead but not a lot, and I think it's done much better in Birds of Prey, and, and I think that's something that maybe Simone should have taken notes on and implemented that more distinctly in the book. Uh, the issue, despite some major flaws, was, you know, it was okay and definitely better than the previous annual. Uh, again, I like the Batgirl-Ivy relationship and, and getting that. I think it has flaws, certainly, but it was great to see Ivy again. Batgirl's dialogue throughout actually seemed much more consistent, so I am going to give you know some positive remarks, but the only thing that was off, I think, was much of what Ivy said and I just felt like she was on drugs Uh, and it was you know it was also nice to see the original birds again albeit briefly because we did see Katana and Starling again I'm gonna give this 6.5 out of 10 bats next up we have Backroll 31 Wrath of the Ragdoll Writer Gail Simone, penciler Fernando Passar, and anchor Jonathan Glapion, and colorist Blonde. While attempting to vandalize the Carter Resnick Foundation building, Alicia and her friends have found themselves under attack by a disturbing individual. It has already taken their friend Terry, and when it corners them again, their friend Raymond is taken as well, or Ramon. Much as her friend Jode wants to just escape, Alicia can't simply let Ramon be killed by this attacker. After all that's happened to her there, Barbara Gordon is back at Gotham Mercy General Hospital. This was where she woke up after she was shot. It's where she first encountered the mirror. It's where she took her mother after the Joker mutilated her hand. Now it's where her erstwhile boyfriend Ricky is after having survived being shot by her own father. As she heads toward the entrance, she has a strange sense that she's being watched but shrugs it off. Inside, she encounters Ricky's mother Helen, who hugs her happily, thanking her for coming. All the while, Barbara worries that Ricky called her there just to dump her for not visiting him often enough. Helen unloads a pot full of tamales on Barbara, warning that the girl is getting too skinny as she ushers her into her son's room. Ricky is ecstatic to see her, and after worrying so much, seeing him like this makes her cry. He admits that he has something difficult to tell her and goes on to say that a lawyer came to see him. He intends to sue Barbara's father, Commissioner Jim Gordon, for shooting him without cause. Barbara is so aghast at this news that she has to excuse herself. Meanwhile, Ragdoll strangles Ramon to death, leaving only Alicia and Joe left to ki- be killed off. His employer has demanded that there be no witnesses and the girls could not be left alive. As she steps into her car, Barbara receives a call from Alicia, desperately begging for help. You wonder why Alicia is calling Barbara and what she thinks she can do. She explains that she and her friends were recruited to vandalize the offices of the Carter Resnick Foundation building because of the terrible things they do there. Someone tipped the company off though and a killer started coming after them. Barbara warns her to call the police instead. Being arrested is better than being dead, after all. Alicia tearfully responds that police didn't believe her when she called them. She begs Barbara to tell her family she loves them if she doesn't survive this night. Intensifying her focus, Barbara demands to know what floor her friend is on and makes her way there. Despite how furious she is that Alicia allowed herself to be talked into something as radical as this, Barbara scales and breaks into the building. The foundation is a dummy corporation enrolled by Ezekiel Rain, who has caused many journalists and protesters to disappear. Alicia would not be one of those tonight. Two nights ago, Alicia and her friends talked to Bleak Michael, who encouraged them to take greater action against Carter Resnick by detonating a powerful stink bomb in their offices to make them uninhabitable for a week. Though she was reluctant, Alicia agreed. As Barbara manages to pick up Alicia's location on her tracker, Ragdoll catches up to Alicia and Joe in the stairwell. As Joe is practically in hysterics, Alicia warns her to get out of the building any way she can while she distracts the Ragdoll. Before she runs down the stairs, Joe grabs Alicia for a kiss. Ragdoll approaches her and Alicia calls out that the people he is working for are evil, focusing forcing people into slavery for access to water, covering up toxic waste bills, and doing obscene testing on monkeys. This last seems to catch Ragdoll's attention, but he shrugs it off, leaping at her and wrapping his entire body around her. Angrily, Backer warns him to get away from her friend, landing feet first on his chest and then smashing his masked face violently into the stair railing. Realizing that she's overdoing it, Barbara backs off, but this only gives Ragdoll the opportunity to entangle his body with hers, causing them both to tumble down the stairs. Unable to get him off, Batgirl switches to tactical strikes, causing him such pain that he loosens his grip and calls for her to stop. Indignantly, he comments that he should never have even tried to do good. Incredulously, Barbara responds that killing two people isn't exactly good. He comments that he only choked them into unconsciousness. Full-on murder costs extra. Besides, they were terrorists. Weekly, Alicia interjects that all she and her friends had intended to do was drop a stink bomb. He responds that the device she holds is actually a deadly nerve toxin that would have killed everyone in the building, including Alicia and her friends. Balefully, he decides that he will give them the opportunity to leave without further molestation, or they can stay and get murdered for free. Shouldering Alicia's weight, Batgirl helped her down the stairs, cursing whoever it was that set her friend up. Meanwhile, at the Three Towers, Bleak Michael reports to Cherise Carnes that the toxin release didn't work out. Someone had tipped Mr. Rain off to their plant. Fortunately, the threat was enough to keep him out of Gotham for the time being. However, the traitor in their midst would require punishment. That night, Ragdoll pays a visit to the man who hired him, a Mr. Travers, commenting that he would have preferred to know that Carter Resnick was abusing monkeys. The dishonesty, though, has inspired him to tender his resignation by strangling Mr. Travers to death. Next, surveilled. Okay, so this issue's uh, a little all over the place, I think. Let me first ask you uh, just about activism and and what you think about Alicia. So in the beginning we learned that Alicia was was an activist I think she painted things over her wall in like issue one when Barbara first got in there and I feel like our thoughts of Alicia were that she was a, um, a peaceful activist I think that she she did more um, walks outside and sit-ins and things like that and I thought maybe I should look up with activism is like a a better deck a good definition so activism is a doctrine or practice that emphasizes direct vigorous action especially in support of or opposition to one side of a controversial issue so I feel like yeah I think you could definitely I mean we don't really know what we just know that she's apparently an activist we don't really know what she's been doing or what she's opposing but We're we're told on several occasions that, yeah, she is into activism. But I feel like we go from volunteer work to this. I mean, think about what she was doing with the Garden in Cherry Hill in Annual Number 2. We know that she probably did do less violent things, but why suddenly go against her natural actions of protests and sit-ins? Why the change, and why now is she suddenly poison Ivy? Is this, I mean, just like, let's focus on Alicia, and this is what we're going to do. I mean... Do we really even care that much about Ouija to focus on her, number one? I mean, this is Batgirl. Why can't we learn more about Barbara Gordon? And number two, if you want us to focus on her, then why are you changing her character on us? Given the the, revelations at the end, why didn't she do more research into this? Uh, I I think she should have realized it was going to be a little bit out of her comfort zone. And especially Bleak Michael, I mean, my gosh. Has she really not seen him ever, uh, you know, on the news or anything? And just, uh, I I mean, it's a little sketchy, someone coming up out of the blue and telling her about this. You'd think she'd be a little more intelligent and do her research. Hopefully she learned her lessons after this, and I think she'll stick with pickets now. Let's hope. Again, I wonder if this is an attempt at making Alicia more interesting and in, and in getting to know her. And again, I say that it failed because what she is doing here goes against what we have thought about her since the beginning. We're in, we're forced to endure a sensual situation that is suddenly I'll get to that later on, uh, with no emotional connection, and then Alicia just turns out to be a damsel in distress in the end. So, frankly. I'm just as annoyed with Alicia as I was when she was first introduced. Ricky is still Barbara Gordon's kind of sort of boyfriend. I don't know if Simone thinks that this is cute, but it's really not. And it's, um, (laughs) I mean, my gosh. Number one, again, Ricky is just not the type of guy that Barbara Gordon would date. And number two, I mean, my gosh, if you're going to do something, then why are you going 75%? You need to go all the way uh but you know if if he is her kind of sort of boyfriend, then why in the world is she concerned ha- that he's if he is going to break up with her if you're if I'm not dating you, if I have no emotional connection to you and I don't have a relationship, then why am I concerned that you may break up with me that goes i mean that means I'm not what i mean what <laughs> Well, you know, Ricky's suing the Babs' father. How awkward, and was he really shot without cause? He had a weapon. He was in this sort of gang situation. I think that's going nowhere, but let's add as much drama as we possibly can. Uh, what's weird about the Alicia story is that we had her with James Jr., and then nothing, and then suddenly she's doing something, and I wonder where the transition was. Um, we had Alicia in the beginning. She gave that knife, or she got a knife, she gave that weird crystal thing or whatever it was and then of course the james jr storyline and then really silence with her and now we're back with alicia i don't know i wish we had better supporting casts. connections with sharice what is the big picture here i think that's something are we going to learn about that soon what what is her deal and what does she want done with rain and what's her connection with rain a traitor with cherise Would you expect that? Frankly, no, uh, because it doesn't make sense given how dedicated each of the disgraced are to her and how they have been consistently written to like really following her lead. It seems like a way for Simone to keep these characters in the book without hitting a dead end. So uh, I think this just goes completely against what we had known of them. And I don't think it makes sense. And it doesn't keep me interested. It just like boggles my mind as to why do we even need these people still in our lives can we move on frankly i don't know what to think about alicia and joe kissing uh you know and and i don't like it for the same reasons that i didn't like condor kissing black canary it just seemed very forced we're in like a i'm going to die situation i'm going to kiss you my problem is that there's just no emotion involved i mean condor i guess had an attraction to dinah but it was annoying because he didn't really know her that long and the same with her i mean i don't know how long these two have known each other it's i guess a little strange for me to go from alicia liking and dating james jr to all of a sudden this situation again i cite you know batwoman probably the best relationship that i have seen and it's just a far cry from that, and, and I don't know, I I not no no shipping there. That would definitely be a knot if I had to do a hot knot scale. Batgirl is certainly using some brute force when she goes after Ragdoll, and and I just wonder how he's not dead. And then she asks, "Hey, are you okay?" I mean, she needs to get in control. What in the world is going on? And that almost happened, I think, in Birds of Prey too. And that's something that I just don't like. And I just wonder oh my gosh I just uh, this character has just been dragged through the mud and I don't really know what we can do to fix it now ragdoll is our villain here who is he where did he come from are we just going to go along with him suddenly appearing for a job how does he know that the stink bomb is not a stink bomb why does he all of a sudden have this care for monkeys? And he's not killing people, even though it seems like he's killing people. He lets people go away. Very weird. Uh, and it's just a villain that talks weird again. I, I feel like every villain that we've had really talks strangely. I, I'm talking grotesque. I'm talking Gretel. Well, I don't know. You know. I. What a terrible contract. Are you going to get your money or give him your money? I mean, he just walks away and... It's, I don't know, it's just so strange. Was this a one-shot? I can't even tell. Are we focusing on Batgirl being surveilled from outside, and that's what we're focusing on? So we had one issue with Ragdoll, and that's it. And are we supposed to care about villains and like them in one issue? Because that didn't happen here. I'm going to give this a 5 out of 10 bats. Finally, and, you know, I certainly hope that it's better, we've got Birds of Prey 31, Death Jump, writer Chrissy Marks, penciler Robson Rocha, inker O'Clair Albert, breakdown Scott McDaniel, and Colors Chris Sotomayor. And just a note, again, this takes place before Batman Eternal Number 1. We learn that the mysterious bad guy from the end of the previous issue is Axton, saying he is now in charge of all Asian sm- ooh Asian smuggling. Donovan, you need to get some stakes in that Asian smuggling operations through Gotham Port. Some of the people already in charge of that are incredulous, and he shows them he means business by killing associates faster than they can blink. Because of course, of course, he is a teleporter. Now they're on board, but they need help with Commissioner Gordon, who is closing in on their operation. Axton. helps helps out by killing some informants who are kept in locked rooms. Elsewhere, Dinah brings nourishment to Kurt, but he doesn't remember her. What a bummer. At a diner, Gordon talks about his frustration surrounding those impossible hits by accident, and he complains to Wallace, the retired cop who helps Eve out. Wallace then ends up calling the birds, and they gather on the barge, and little Eve does some research and discovers that Axton can teleport with instantaneous speed, but only about 20 feet per jump. And Gordon is his next target. Knowing Axton is focusing on Maritime shipping, they go to the shipping yard, but first they memorize the container yard plan in order to be one step ahead of Axon. Elsewhere, Axon gets bold, pops into GCPD, and carries Gordon out. He brings him to the shipping yard and tells Gordon he wants a hunt. Luckily, the birds are already there and are following Axton slash losing him slash trying to outdo him. Sticks drops in front of Gordon right before Axon kills him, and she takes a lot of hits and bleeds black. Thank goodness, finally we've got the right coloring because it was completely wrong in backroll. So thank you, Birds of Prey color then the birds really get to work and get a good rhythm all getting in hits before and after Axon teleports then Batgirl goes insane again and starts beating him Gordon wants to know whether she's going to kill him too and then she pulls a trank out and knocks Axton out later she talks to Dinah about almost going over the edge and the constant danger to her father then Dinah nearly goes biblical and says they can only worry about today and the future will take care of itself next suicide mission First up, I haven't commented about this in a while, but I think this is just a great cover by Jorge Molina. So definitely uh, check that out. So, first thoughts on Axton. Um, we saw him at the end. I wondered if he was connected to that guy that fell, um, fell overboard that was with Raish. Is this a one shot? You know, could there have been a longer story with him? and why did he have to be so cocksure and and jump into gcpd I, i think we could have pulled this out maybe to two maybe three would have been a little too much but just him getting i think he had the potential of becoming some sort of mob boss and really if he took steps um more surely and more slowly i think we could have had a great thing going with him and I think it just all went all went to hell, I guess is the best way. When he um, popped into GCPD, I mean, why would you do that? Why would you put everything on the table? I think if you had a little bit of suspense uh, at the end of the issue and then had this GCPD thing in the next issue, that would have been great. But I think he should have built up his empire potentially and then taking Jim Gordon. But just popping in there right in front of everyone and then taking him, it's just very, very strange. I do want to know more about his powers. Yeah, he's he can teleport, but it seems like he's better than Nightcrawler. Because remember, if you know anything about Nightcrawler, he can only teleport where he can see. And this guy apparently doesn't need that. And I wonder, is that a stretch of the imagination. Do you think that that's even possible? I mean, he's getting into these enclosed rooms. How does he do it? I think it would have been great to see him maybe doing research and getting plans, something like that, showing a a smart villain. I love the shipping yard scene, not only with Gordon thinking through how he can fight a teleporter, but also the birds and how they fight and strategize, especially at the end. Now, since Eve says all her descendants are those with powers, do you think that we've argued away metahumans? Uh, Because those are, I think, something, you know, Static Shock, obviously, metahumans. Dinah Lance, a metahuman. But that's a word that I feel like we've not really heard or seen in the New 52. So is this a way to argue that away? Or do you think she is metahuman prime? And yeah, they're there, but we just don't use that word. Why does Batgirl lose control suddenly? And again, I have to say, since Birds of Prey, and nearly beat Axton. I mean, what is sending her over the edge? There's no connection. She's not flashing a Joker. What's going on? Why does Batgirl exaggerate and say her father has so many enemies? Uh, It it seems, I mean, every cop is going to have enemies. Maybe the commissioner a little bit more so. But all of a sudden, she's like putting all of this this, uh, weight on him, I feel. Is there a purpose to what she's saying in that it's a good way to transition to Batman Eternal? Because... Some bad stuff happens there, and now Jim Gordon's in jail um, for for a train derailment. But, uh, well, not only a train derailment, I guess you can say, but also killing somebody. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's the reason why they did that. And then finally, Kurt and Dinah. Again, just such a dead end. I mean, I, I'm with Condor. I kind of want Kurt to be dead but of course for different reasons than he does but just her like feeding him and then he doesn't remember her and then she leaves and just these short scenes are they really purposeful i mean is there a way that we can get this fixed and you know it's going to be super frustrating just like in rich with richard and the hrd and you know the 80s and that we don't even know how that was resolved is this going to be resolved by issue 34 how are these loose ends going to be wrapped up there are still loose ends that need to be wrapped up from the uh choke storyline there i mean gosh i mean starling's gone there were things that needed to be wrapped up there who was that girlfriend that she had so bizarre so many things and now this is being canceled it is so frustrating oh my goodness okay well you know i mean this was like i said the fight scene i think was just really well done the batgirl characterization not as good not as steady in this one again she's kind of losing control and i wonder are we pointing to something? Is something about to happen? Maybe she's going to retire in this book, in New 52. And you know what? I'd be fine with that. I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 birds. Now over to Chris for the Batman 66 review. Hey
4: everybody, welcome to the Batman 66 review segment. Glad you could make it. Thanks for downloading. As always, thanks for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 title... I'll be commenting on issue number 11, which was cover dated July 2014 for hard copy release. Originally, this was released in download format. The cover art here was done by Jonathan Case. The variant cover art was done by Michael and Laurel Allred. The title's first and lone full-length story for this issue is entitled The Joker's Big Show and is written by Jeff Parker with art and colors by Jonathan Case and lettered by Wes Abbott. We go to Arkham, where it's patient pageant night. What could possibly go wrong? Bruce and Dick are escorted to the auditorium by Dr. Quinn where they are met by Chief O'Hara providing security and seated next to Commissioner Gordon and his daughter Barbara. The Catwoman, King Tut, The Bookworm, The Siren, False Face, and Chandel all make appearances on stage before the Joker is brought out as the headline act, which incapacitates the audience with fits of laughter and he makes his escape with Catwoman. Changing into their heroic personas. Batman, Robin, and Batgirl find Professor Overbeck bound and gagged, and that the villains have made off with the Brain Regulator, that was last seen in issue number three, along with a broadcast antenna, which put together can conceivably make a large group of people go hysterical. The next day, the villains used the device on the mayor and his group at a golf course and steal their valuables. The villains then lure the heroes to Gotham Park, where they plan to use the Brain Regulator on a more massive scale on the people and the heroes. Upon arrival, the citizens hinder the hero's attempts to get the villains. Multiple fights ensue. Dr. Quinn uses the regulator to try to control the chaos. It works, and the mob of citizens surround the villain's apparent surrender. But the result leaves Dr. Quinn in a hysterical state, and in the care of Dr. Hugo back at Arkham. I did not like this story. I was hoping for something better. Yes, we were treated to the villain team-up with Joker and the Catwoman, Yes, we had Batman, Robin, and Batgirl teaming up together. Yes, we had some cameo appearances of other villains. These are story elements that I would ordinarily love. Despite all that, I don't think that this was one of Jeff Parker's better efforts. This just seemed to be all sizzle on no stake. If the end result was to establish a villainous Harley Quinn for the next Joker appearance, it seemed to be a long way to get from point A to point B. The story felt padded. Even the first page of the story seemed to be wasted from a storytelling standpoint. I don't know if the expanded page format for one full length story for this issue, this title has usually two stories, one long, one short, hindered Parker in any way. I didn't like that the Joker and Catwoman had to rely on a device for committing crimes. Robin slash Dick Grayson didn't seem to be in character. He would make inane utterances that no one responded to. I don't think he served any purpose in this story. We have a different mayor now other than Mayor Linseed in Gotham City, but his name wasn't even given in the story. I didn't care for Jonathan Case's cover. I didn't find it striking nor compelling. I wonder if this was the only version of a cover that Case did, if this was some last minute assignment and how long he had to do it. This title hasn't had an alternate variant cover in a few months, and the regular cover artist Michael and already did the variant here. Okay, now while I'm knocking Case on the cover, I thought he did contribute the best part in anything I found redeeming, and that was the color work. I thought they were very striking and vivid, and they seemed to convey this 3D separation. I did like the touches of the bust of Joker attached to the front grille of his car, that was reminiscent of one of the TV show episodes. And some of the panels in the story here really seemed to capture June Norris Catwoman very well. Fans of the TV series will recall that the Joker and Catwoman teamed up before in the episodes The Funny Feline Felonies and The Jokes on Catwoman. I'm giving Batman 66 number 11 a 5 out of 10 bads. Now, since I normally review two stories in this segment, I'll look at Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet number 1 by DC and Dynamite Comics. The story, on the wrong track, was written by Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman, with art by Ty Templeton, co by Tony Avina, and lettered by Wes Abbott. And it sports a gorgeous cover by Alex Ross with a variant cover by Michael and Laurel Alred. The story opens at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson. With Dick prepping for a date and Bruce being summoned by Commissioner Gordon, who's worried about a priceless fossil collection being shipped out of the city by train. Bruce Wayne takes the train and reunites with old rival Britt Reid and his valley Cato. The troop trade some parbs, and the train is brought to a sudden stop by adhesive on the tracks. Bruce summons Dick to join him as Robin, who seemingly manages to ditch his date, change into Robin, and rendezvous with Bruce's train by Bad Copter, seemingly in mere seconds, and also abandoning the Bad copter Soon, all our heroes confront our villain, Colonel Gum, who is now going by General Gum, his appearance altered and covered in adhesive during a lab accident. While atop of the train, Gum manages to use a gun to stick our hero's feet to the top of the train just as it's approaching a tunnel. To be continued. The obvious question I asked myself upon not seeing Colonel Gum's full face was, did they not have the rights to use Roger C. Carmel's image here? Roger C. Carmel played Colonel Gum in the TV Batman crossover episodes A Piece of the Action Batman Satisfaction, where Batman and Robin first encountered Green Hornet and Kato. Incidentally, Roger C. Carmel died in 1986 at only age 54. The question was answered by writer Ralph Garman on Kevin Smith's Batman on Batman podcast, who said they didn't have the rights to use that image, so Garman wrote the story in such a way that Gum's real face would not be fully seen. Now, From what I gathered, Garman is a huge 66 Batman fan, and I wonder who contributed what between him and Kevin Smith? I mean, Kevin Smith writing an E-rated book? Hmm. The interior artwork by Ty Templeton is nice, and Alex Ross's cover is suitable for framing. I hate to pick at the writing when huge Bat fans wrote this, but I thought the story moved a bit slow. And if the series is going to run six issues and my interest here is lukewarm already one issue in, I have some doubts going forward. While our heroes are finding a mutual foe they dealt with before, Colonel or er, General Gum, Isn't that great or memorable a villain? Batman certainly has some great villains. The Green Hornet had no recurring villains during the one season it ran. I was too young when the Batman Green Hornet team-up episodes originally aired, but back in the day, reruns of those episodes were sort of the holy grail of the series and talked about by my friends and cousins. I would hear about them from them and how great and strange these episodes were. Ooh, did you see Bruce Lee as Cato fighting Robin? That was really awesome but it would be a while before I would actually see them. I'm giving Batman 66 Meetscreen Hornet number one six and a half out of ten bats. A slow start to the story, but it did give me a cliffhanger, and it had a really great Alex Ross cover. Things look pretty dire in both Batman 66 titles. Well, next month's offerings be better? download the next episode same stella time same stella sight.
2: next up is babs in the tube
3: the adventures of batman with robin boy wonder batman and robin dynamic duo against crime and corruption whose real identities as millionaire philanthropist bruce wade and his young ward dick grayson are known only to alfred the faithful butler Ever alert, they respond swiftly to a signal from the police. And moments later, from the secret batcave deep beneath Wayne Manor, they roar out to protect life, limb, and property as Batman and Robin, Cape Crime Fighters. Batman and Robin, scourge of Gotham City's kooky criminals. The Joker, clown prince of crime. The Penguin, pudgy for of perfidy. And the cool, cruel Mr. Freeze. Watch out, villains! Here come Batman and Robin!
2: Remember, this is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film, and currently I am watching the 1968 Batman Superman Hour, or Batman with Robin the Boy Wonder. And this is episode 17, and that's season 1, episode 17. It Takes Two to Make a Team and Wrath of the Riddler. And it aired on the 4th of January 1969. Uh, Now, Wrath of the Riddler, also focused on Batgirl, but unfortunately I couldn't find a sound clip for that so you will just have to deal with this very short synopsis, but Batgirl uh, helps to stop the Riddler from kidnapping Dick Grayson to prevent Bruce Wayne from building a state-of-the-art crime lab for Gotham City. So that sounds super interesting. I'm sorry I couldn't find a sound clip. I can't even watch it, so that's that's also a bummer. So we will focus on It Takes Two to Make a Team and it stars Olin Sewell as Batman and Alfred Pennyworth, Casey Kasem as Robin, Larry Stewart as the Joker, Ted Knight as Penguin, Riddler, and Commissioner Gordon, and Jane Webb as Batgirl. Joker, Penguin, and Riddler are after an Incan treasure map. They plan to break up the dynamic duo by making Robin jealous of Batgirl. Take a listen. Luxury liner
3: pulls into Gotham Harbor. In its safe, a treasure map for the buried fortune of the Peruvian Incas. Irresistible bait for the Joker. Clown, Prince of Crime. <laughs> no safe is safe when I'm around.
1: <laughs>
3: Except this one, Joker. From the Batman.
1: Going somewhere? Shoot! <laughs> <Gesundheit. laughs> Boy Wonder. A
3: week later, the same Peruvian treasure map is en route to a bank vault. When the pudgy purveyor of perfidy, the penguin, attempts to purloin it. The treasure map is mine. Ah, the darn dynamic duo. Days later, in the darkened bank vault, which contains the treasure map, a third attempt is made by the Riddler. Batgirl. How did you... You're no puzzle for me, Riddler. When is a pineapple not a pineapple? When it's a grenade. Wow! Double play!
1: Ooh. Ow! Wow, look at that! He got away. But that's all he got.
3: Blast those Cape Crusaders! We must break them up, or something. That's it! Split them up! Destroy their teamwork. We'll make Robin jealous of Batgirl. So jealous... The duo will be no more! I just turned in the alarm. They'll be here in seconds. Good. Now don't forget, make the girl look good. Here comes
1: Batgirl. Get ready and let her see you.
3: Batgirl girl, now you two mop up out of here, and I'll see what's going on inside.
1: Now, holy sneak attack! Ah, get, out. Oh. Yeah, get Robin, Batgirl girl, too tough. Come
3: on, let's beat it. Here comes Batgirl Girl.
1: You okay, Robin? Huh? And look out! again! Adjust Watch! Thanks. You don't need me here. I'll see what's keeping Batman. Wait, Batgirl! You better go help Batman! There's a trap set up for him! Watch out, Batman! Thanks again, Batgirl! Guess it's just not my day! Hey, Batgirl! Another one? One more Batgirl!
3: Great! Hold it again, please! Now, in his real-life identity as Dick Grayson, Robin tries to fight the hurt welling up within him. Don't miss tonight's special guest on the Ed Solomon Show, Batman's number one partner in crime-fighting, the fabulous Batgirl!
1: And now... Batman's number one, partner? Holy. Yes, Commissioner. No, sir. Batman's not here. We just received word that the Joker, Penguin, and Riddler were
3: sighted leaving broadcast building. And the Riddler left this riddle.
1: What's worth two in the bush? Uh, Don't worry, Commissioner. I, uh, will solve it. Now's my chance to show Batgirl and Batman. I'll get those three villains all by myself. What's worth two in the bush? A bird in the hand. The bird, the penguin, and the hand is Hans Hotel, of course. The young bird fell for the bait.
3: (laughs) We've done it. With two in the bush a bird in the hand is right and the bird in our hands is a robin
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: in an abandoned factory building
0: <laughs> watch this
3: meanwhile in the bat cave and the riddle commissioner what's worth two in the bush Robin, of course. I'd better find him fast. Holy crocodiles! Wait, boy wonder. Maybe this light will help you.
1: Cut the lights! I can't see! I can't see! Come on, Batman, tune me in and I'll never drop out again! <laughs> Come on, now
3: we can steal the Peruvian treasure map.
1: Yeah, this half of the dynamic duel will still be
3: here when we get back. (laughs) That is, if he doesn't (laughs) drop in on the crocodiles. (laughs) Robin's homing transmitter. Hang on, lad, wherever you are.
1: Got to get out of here. One more second and there's nobody here but us crocodiles Who? oh robin thank goodness you're all right thanks to batman you were very foolish chum do you realize you fell for a villainous plot to break us up i do now batman i i'm sorry together again you bet
3: at this moment Three familiar figures slink through the shadows and sneakily approach the side door of the Peruvian ambassador's mansion. (laughs)
1: Beautiful.
3: Just to be sure, we all stick together on this. We'll each take a piece of the map. One piece for you, one for you, and one foot good work chum i have caught the crooks <laughs>
1: wait this is batman you let the real crooks get away
3: Oh, an honest mistake but we'll get the map back for you sir the same way they tried to steal it by breaking up their team let's start with the penguin Riddler, the dynamic dodos are on television right now, if you care to look. I feel sorry for the Penguin because the other two will no doubt cut the evil bird out of the treasure. Is that so? Oh, no.
1: I think Penguin is too smart. The Riddler and Joker aren't much on brains. Nonsense. I'll bet the Riddler has a plan right now to cut out the Joker. Well? Don't
3: move. Just hand over the other parts of the map. Get lost, Bird Brain. When you came through that door, you were sprayed with knockout gas. (laughs) Don't put me on you, you. (sighs) Good night. Now, we just have to split two ways. (laughs) Correction. One way. You were sprayed, too. You sure know how to hurt a guy? Now the treasure map of the Incas belongs to me. And me only. (laughs) Moments later, at the Gotham City yacht basin. Captain, get underway, Captain. Meet for Peru. No need to shout, Joker. My bet was on you all the time. (laughs) Congratulations, Dynamic Duo. And of course, you too, Batgirl. You've outdone yourselves this time. Teamwork, Commissioner. That's what does it. You can't beat it.
2: Okay, now I have my literature recommendation. And I'm a little, you know, I enjoyed this book that I'm about to read. Recommend, but there were some crazy parts that made me super upset. Uh, This is called Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Somebody asked me, well, I asked, you know, have you ever read Tess of the D'Urbervilles? And she said, no, what is it about? And then I summarized it within two minutes, and I'm wondering if I perhaps should summarize it in two minutes uh, right now. So Tess of the D'Urbervilles starts off with a pastor coming up to the father of Tess and telling him that he is descended from the famous D'Urbervilles, Line because he's actually a Derby field. So he's a bit of a drunkard, he goes home, and then the mother gets these crazy ideas that they should visit some distant relatives, Derbavilles, and try to get some sort of connection, and hopefully that this will benefit them financially, and maybe Tess will also be married. So Tess doesn't want to do this, but in the end, she decides that she will go up there. Now, there's a mother up there who's a bit of an invalid, and then her son, Alec Derbaville, and right away, Alec is Very forthcoming and flirtatious with Tess And she's very much no, no, no Unfortunately, Tess is later raped by Alec And he goes off And uh, makes it seem as if he didn't rape her That, you know, she, she asked for it She becomes pregnant Later on, the the child died and of course living in a small town this is i mean just a bad stigma so she goes elsewhere and goes to a farm and becomes a milkmaid and there there's a guy named angel claire who is the son of another pastor and the father wanted all of his sons to continue to become clergymen but angel is one that decided he wanted to be a farmer so here he is on this milk farm they fall in love but he, when he asks her to marry him, she says no repeatedly because she just doesn't feel like she's good enough for him, obviously, having the stain on the past. Finally, she. Relents. They get married, and the eve before the marriage, she says, there's something you've got to know about. And she's tried multiple times, actually, to tell him about this. And he says, you know, wait until after we're married, and then we'll both let, you know, loose of our sins and everything. So the they get married, and I guess the, the day of the wedding, they come, you know, to their little cabin for their honeymoon. And he decides he's going to let her know about his sins first, and then, you know, she can. And he tells her about this 48-hour period where he had a dalliance with an old woman and she forgives him test forgives him and is very excited obviously because of what happened to her and she goes on to tell her what happens and he is upset which is super frustrating because she forgives him he is upset and says you are a completely different person than i married he decides to leave her goes off to become a farmer in brazil and actually gets pretty sick but he doesn't die and she wanders elsewhere and works at farms and is abused and later i mean like I guess we shouldn't say physically, but, like, emotionally. Physically, in the fact that, like, uh, a farmer tells her to do more work than he's telling other people to do. While she's working at this farm, doing hay and, and things like that, uh, Alec Durberville returns, and apparently he's decided to become a clergyman. But when he sees Tess, he falls into his old lifestyle, tries to get her to marry him. Tess's parents become ill. Her father dies, and then the mother becomes healthy again they decide to leave and go elsewhere Alec finds them uses uh the family as a means to get Tess to marry him just saying that I can provide and she's finally relents uh it's I mean she keeps saying no and no and no but then he uses that and and also just her desperation that Angel doesn't he's not writing her he's not coming back so it seems like that that marriage is over she ends up going away with Durbeville Angel comes back pretty sickly he recovers he goes on a search for Tess He ends up finding Tess And well Tess is living with And I guess kind of married to Alec Durberville And she cries and says you're too late You're too late She goes upstairs and is pretty angry Because of course Alec lied to her And saying that you know Angel is never going to come back Here's where it gets crazy. In the last fi- the last fifteen pages, Tess stabs and kills Alec Durberville, runs out, finds Angel before he goes, confesses that yes, I've killed Alec Durberville. Angel believes that she's just in hysterics and it's like a metaphorical killing. They run off. They spend some time together. They go to Stonehenge, and at Stonehenge, before she falls asleep, she says, "Uh, you know, they're they're gonna come and get me, but." Please promise me that you will go and get my um, younger sister and that you will marry her and take care of her. The police come. They get her. And then the last scene is Angel and Tess's sister walking up a hill. And then a black flag is raised over a town that they're looking down on, meaning Tess has uh, been executed. So that is Tess that it reveals in two minutes. It may have been longer than two minutes. But let me tell you, you know, it's super frustrating because I really like Tess. I'm like, yes, Tess, because I love Jane Eyre. And I thought, yes, Tess is sticking to her gun. She's saying no, no, no. The rape happens and the way it's portrayed, you can, it's distinctly a rape. But afterwards, it's just, it's really hard. It messes with your mind because of how Alec plays off of it um, and because of how Tess plays off of it. That Um, It's almost blamed on her and just that, you know, she's responsible for it and there was some consent, but there obviously was not. All of her hardships, all of these things that like happened to her and is blamed on her, but she has, I mean, she should take no blame. The fact that Angel had a relationship with an older lady and she, she forgives him but he will not forgive Tess is ridiculous and you know good riddance to that you know she had a moment of happiness but that doesn't happen at all and then just the the last 15 pages when you know you are so sympathetic to Tess and then she kills Alec and then I just want to strangle Tess because what in the world are you doing you should have just ran out with Angel so I you know it was entertaining I read it really quickly because I was entertained and and I like Tess but you know I'm sorry I guess spoilers but yeah that's how it all turns out and it, it was just insane at the end um it's funny because when i posted on facebook that i just read it and i wanted to strangle tests and things like that people said that these are some of the the most depressing novels they they've read by hardy and, and some say hardy's best novels are to read the end and then go to the beginning <laughs> um so who knows maybe it starts out depressing and then ends but you know give it a shot uh unless you just feel satisfied because i just uh summarized that entire thing I also recommend, you know, I went to New York and, uh, man, I had two whirlwind New York trips. One was I stayed up 36 hours because I went up to see a musical, Bridges of Madison County, starring Kelly O'Hara and Stephen Pasquale. And I have to say, Kelly O'Hara is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Broadway actresses. So I was very blessed to do that. But, yeah, we just went up there, saw it, came back down, and I went to work the next day. Uh, So I was up for 36 hours straight and I was pretty lucid, which is funny. But it was so worth it because it was closing it was just so it's such an emotional and beautiful ride and then I saw my regular New York trip at the end of the school year every year I saw Of Mice and Men with James Franco and Chris O'Dowd and O'Dowd was certainly I think the one to watch just his portrayal of Lenny is is great and uh very impactful and and I think uh Franco does a good job as George but um I think he leaves a little bit to be desired and and you can't rely on your star power I think you got to bring a little bit more to it but uh, it was it was great and I'm glad that I got to see that so I guess sorry that was all to say that uh, I've been reading some plays as well and Doubt was a great play by John Patrick Shanley and I read Inherit the Wind by Jerome Lawrence and Robert Edwin Lee and now I am reading Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee uh, which is pretty crazy uh so yeah i i definitely recommend if not books start reading plays too just just start getting into that uh, especially if you're if you're into theater well, send any questions or comments to Oracle at gmail.com. Um, send any questions specifically about uh, Barbara Kiesel or to Barbara Kiesel to me. And also, if you cannot make it to, you, you don't believe you can make it to the call and show about Killing Joke, why don't you send questions or comments to me uh, about that as well. So at least we can get you on in some way. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Oracle And like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast. Thanks also to BatmanYTB.com, that's Batman Yesterday, Today, and Beyond, for the episode summary for It Takes Two to Make a Team. And, well, that's our show. So, uh, yes, I guess look forward to an interview soon and the Killing Joke call-in. And San Diego is on the horizon, which is scary. Scary but exciting. Well, until next time...